This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. A human rights group has tried repeatedly to warn Ottawa about his anti-Semitic posts. Certainly there's been some frustration um, as we've tried to alert the government uh, to some systemic problems that exist within the, the department. CBC News reached out to Laith Marouf and got no response. It was the same for the Community Media Advocacy Centre. Marie, you really have to wonder, how does this get missed? Well, Adrian, that is the central question. And it's significant because Minister Hussein asked the centre today how Mr. Marouf could have been hired. Now, that's weird because both Marouf and the minister were quoted in the same press release last April praising the program. And it's not like Mr. Marouf didn't have profile. In fact, the Centre for Israel and Jewish Affairs logged tweets of concern going back to 2017. Welcome back to the Law Bites podcast. After taking a brief break in mid-August, the podcast returns with a special episode focused on combating online anti-Semitism with a particular emphasis on an incident involving the Department of Canadian Heritage and Laith Marouf, a well-known anti-Semite. As part of Heritage's anti-hate program, the government had provided funding to the Community Media Advocacy Centre, led by Marouf, to develop an anti-racism strategy for Canadian broadcasting. While there was years of evidence of Maroof's anti-Semitism, the department didn't look or didn't find it. The contract was cancelled after a public outcry, but even that led to concerns as it was left to Jewish MPs such as Anthony Housefather, Yara Sachs, and Melissa Lansman to say something while many others remained silent. I had my own uncomfortable involvement in the story when I tweeted about the silence from Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez. Rodriguez, to this day, has only issued a private statement to one journalist, refusing repeated requests to make his statement public. My tweet sparked an astonishing response from Rodriguez's parliamentary secretary, Chris Biddle, who suggested my tweets were either based on hate for Rodriguez or racism towards Minister Ahmed Hussein. Biddle apologized and deleted the tweet, only to tell a reporter a day later that he'd been bullied by a bully and baited into the tweet. Needless to say, this made for a challenging stretch, as the target of unfounded attacks by a sitting MP, and the silence, indeed the decision to defend silence, on anti-Semitism and the funding debacle. As I just noted, the most notable exception to the silence was Anthony Housefather, who not only called on all MPs to speak out, but has been working with politicians from around the world as part of an interparliamentary task force on online anti-Semitism. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the work of the task force in its recent hearing in Washington, D.C., the Maroof incident, and the urgency for all to speak out more aggressively against anti-Semitism. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you're taking the time out to come on. Uh, last week, you were one of the leaders of an interparliamentary hearing on anti-Semitism. It brought together both leaders who've been fighting anti-Semitism from countries around the world, as well as a panel with four of the major platforms, YouTube, Meta, or Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Can you get us started by telling me a little bit about how this initiative came about and what some of its hopes and expectations are? For sure. Um, I'm, I'm actually very proud of this initiative. So in the early days of the pandemic, uh, we discovered two things. We discovered a vast increase 
in anti-Semitism and other forms of hate online as people had more time to be at home, more time to use social media, um, you know, and, and, and there was just an exponential growth in hateful posts. Uh, second, we discovered that we could talk to one another no matter where we were in the world and where we'd previously been, you know, in a sort of pattern where we talked to people around us. We recognized that we could have meetings, we could debate, we could discuss with legislators uh, from around the world. So Michal Kotler Wunsch, um, who was an Israeli member of the Knesset uh, from the Blue and White Party, uh, contacted myself and Michael Levitt, uh, who was a former liberal member of parliament, uh, to talk about starting a group of parliamentarians from across the world that were bipartisan that would tackle online anti-Semitism. And we pulled in Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's a congresswoman from Florida. And the four of us just got the group going. We reached out to friends and contacts we have. So, for example, in Canada, Marty Morantz from the Conservatives and Randall Garrison from the NDP joined the group. Um, and I reached out to friends in Australia uh, and I had Josh Burns from Labour. And at the time, uh, I had Dave Sharma from the Liberals. Now we have a Senator, James Patterson. But basically, we got representation from all of the English-speaking world uh, and Israel. Um, and so that would be Canada, the United States, England, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And then we got the European Parliament's uh, Working Group on Anti-Semitism to join us as well. So theoretically, it brings together legislators from most of the Western world. And the goal is tackling online hate in a cohesive way meaning that all of us have different constitutional, uh, you know, requirements, uh, the, you know, the, the Bill of Rights in the United States and free speech rights under Article One are, are far more powerful in terms of preventing the legislature from doing certain things than in other countries. We're trying to find cohesive ways that all countries can tackle online hate uh, in a similar way so the platforms don't have to do 30 different things in 30 different countries. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the different approaches in different countries, and I want to come back to that in, in a few minutes. But before we do that, I had the chance, I watched stream of the hearing, some of the, the coverage of it. Uh, what were your key takeaways from that hearing? Were you satisfied with what you heard, particularly from the platforms? I was. We, we So we've been having virtual hearings for the last two years, dealing with, you know, uh, civil society groups in all of our countries and experts in disinformation that were telling us what they were tracking and, and, and what their members were experiencing in all these different countries. And, and as you know, the amount of anti-Semitic hate incidents has risen by five times uh, in the United States since 2015. I mean, there, there, there's, there's substantial increase in anti-Semitism uh, each year. Um, so, so we sort of were looking at bringing together the czars on anti-Semitism, Deborah Litstab, Erwin Kotler, um, and so forth for their advice. But also, you know, to have the platforms come before us, tell us what they've done. And, and we had a whole day where we met with them informally before um, and uh, and then to to ask them in public. And there's two things that I that I really took from this. Number one, um, you know, I asked a question where I said, look, if I said all Jews were white supremacists that support apartheid, would that be something that you would take down? Not take down because it's illegal content, but take down because the way I read each of the platforms guidelines that all of them publish, they would form what each of them would, would deem, deem to be hateful speech on their platform that should come down. And they didn't know whether it would come down. And, and so that perplexed me and, and made me recognize that it, it explains why there really seems to be a dichotomy between civil society groups that tell us they report posts and they don't come down for months and months and months, and the platforms that tell us they take down more than 90% of hateful content within a day. 
because there's a disagreement on whether or not things are violating the rules of their platform or not, or they don't know. Um, and the second thing is algorithm transparency, where really we have no idea based on the transparency reports they put out, how many hateful posts, for example, are anti-Semitism. They don't break it down. What are they doing with their algorithms to steer people to those type of posts that are hateful? Um, you know, users don't have an opt out. For example, if a, if a platform says you can post hateful posts on, posts on our platform, there's no opt out for users in Canada. So these are come, some of the things that I sort of thought were useful elements that would help me to determine what I would recommend for future, uh, you know, regulation. Okay. Yeah, no, I th and I think those are good takeaways. I actually wanted to, to drill down a little bit on both of those. You, you, you closed there with transparency. Let's talk a bit about that for a moment. You, there were a number of the companies citing different statistics. I think Meta talked about 95% or a number in that range of hate. They said never even makes it onto their platform and everybody was focusing or pointing to their public reports. I think, I think with your comments just a moment ago, you're suggesting that you think more can be done from a transparency perspective. I do. I mean, for example, the, the main thing is, right, our group is focused on anti-Semitism. Of course, whatever we recommend can be used to tackle any other form of hate as well. But I can't know how many anti-Semitic posts that Meta's AI takes down. I can't know how many anti-Semitic posts their content moderators take down or within what framework of time based on the number that are reported, because none of that is in their transparency reports. They don't even drill down to anti-Semitism as a category. Um, so clearly that can be much more transparent. Also, again, their guidelines, are they following their guidelines, right? We're, we're all only basing ourselves right now with Meta, but in particular that got a D, uh, from the America, the Anti-Defamation League when they looked at Meta's transparency, uh, basically we have no idea whether Meta is telling us the truth or not with the numbers they put out because nobody independently audits them. Yeah, no, I know those issues, I think, were raised during the hearing and, you know, algorithmic transparency, whether on these issues or, frankly, on some of the other issues. C11 is before the Senate right now, the online streaming bill, uh, online news, C18 is coming before the Heritage Committee and algorithmic issues are, are likely to pop up there. And a lot of it comes down to concerns about just how much do we know around these algorithms and how much more transparency can we have? You know, you mentioned a moment ago that you gave a, an example of particular kind of speech and, and how would the the companies react and i have to say as as i watched sort of some of the back and forth around different kinds of speech you know and this this notion that you need to move expeditiously as is often the case with content moderation it started with the easy stuff and there was stuff that everybody said yes of course we feel you know that's unlawful or that stuff that clearly violates our guidelines and we ought to take it down but the discussion over time shifted and at times there were questions about well criticism of israel and uh, or other kinds of speech that uh, sometimes quite clearly may veer into anti-semitism but sometimes is also legitimate speech you know mm -hmm. You, you said, you know, the companies weren't even clear on some of the stuff that you felt was a was a clear cut case. You know, how do we develop models that are consistent with freedom of expression, but at the same time, uh, you know, address some of the kinds of concerns that communities around the world have? So that's a great question. And that's the most tricky thing, right? Because we all want to protect freedom of expression. We don't want to stifle expression. And in democracy, political speech is the core speech. So you don't want to trample on people's rights. But at the same time, you don't want to have insightful posts uh, or posts that violate these companies' platforms' guidelines. And that's the real question, right? You know, legis as legislators, I think we would have the right to say, if something is constitutes hate speech, you have to take it down. 
But we don't have that same right to say you have to take down hateful speech. But a platform should be clear whether it allows hateful speech or not on its platform, what type of hateful speech it allows, and then allow users transparently to determine they don't want to see that speech in their feeds. Um, and, 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 and these platforms all claim that they take down hateful speech. And so when I asked, you know, for example, that, that question, if I said all Jews were white nationalists that support apartheid, clearly that is a, a very derogatory statement about Jews as a whole, saying every single Jew is a white nationalist, which is a negative term that supports apartheid, which is absolutely a huge insult. And they couldn't tell me that that would come down, even though their posts say that they would take down hateful speech against Jews. So, so, so that then steers into the question, if I substitute the word Zionist for Jew, which has now become a euphemism for Jew, people get away with making anti-Semitic statements because they attack Zionists as opposed to attacking Jews. Um, well, then that's, that's a question where I thought they would say, well, then it will depend on the context of what it is that the rest of the post says. But but we didn't even get there because they didn't even agree that Jew itself would be taken down. And that that's where I'm frustrated. I mean, the IRA definition clearly says you can criticize Israel. Canada's adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is a globally developed definition that took place over 20 years. And, and it says clearly you can criticize the state of Israel just like any other state, but you can't disproportionately and unfairly single out Israel for condemnation because, of course, as the only Jewish state, it becomes a euphemism for Jew. And that's where you obviously get into trickier discussions if you're talking about issues related to Israel. It does pose challenges for sure. And the, and the, the associated challenge, and you mentioned a moment ago that you know politicians are free or governments are free to establish rules within the boundaries of their constitutional norms and the like around speech. We've done so in Canada and many other countries have done so as well. You know, how do we or how, how what is the prospect of establishing some commonality of standards, both in terms of uh, what is unlawful and then how you how you enforce some of those things when, as you mentioned off the top, You've brought together a series of countries that have commonality in their concern around the issue, commonality in terms of democratic norms, but different approaches at times when it comes to how they safeguard freedom of expression. A hundred percent. And I think that what has been hardening to me, Michael, is that at least on this issue, right, and, and, and I think you and I have uh, you know, briefly chatted about this before, I think it's so important that people have to speak to people that don't agree with them, and we have to find ways to find common ground with people in other parties. Um, and we can't just be partisan zealots on everything. Um, I, I, I think I've been hardened by the fact that Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, and new Democrats, uh, labor and liberal, conservative and labor, like in all of the different countries where we have, you know, all of the parties on the political spectrum represent at least the mainstream, you know, right and left parties um, and center parties we've really found common ground and we can look for me, for me, the United States probably of all the countries on our platform has the most robust bill of rights protections for freedom of speech. Um, you know, besides section 230, which I think is, is too broad and should be revised that, that limits the platform's liability for civil issues in the United States. Um, there's a general consensus that we both algorithm transparency um, and, and, and also um, requiring the platforms to respect their guidelines and, and have a duty of care um, are things that can be done in all of our legislation. Um, and that's sort of where we're starting to find common ground and our, we're going to reconvene after, um, you know, after this hearing that we just had 
to talk about our next steps in terms of trying to find what we would make recommendations on to all of our different legislatures. Okay, interesting. And 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 I think you see that kind of common view that does cut across the aisle. Another place where I think there is, or hope there would be a common view, involves a particular case. And uh, your colleague Michael Levitt raised it at the hearing involving Laith Maroof. Um, yeah. with the, but, and he raised it in a couple of contexts, and I, I guess I want to touch on both. He raised it first with respect to uh, his account at Twitter and the fact that there were duplicate accounts that had been created after he had been suspended. I believe that's resulted in some positive action from Twitter. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that context, how, how the company has responded, and more broadly about, I suppose, how companies respond to these kinds of issues where it's a bit of a whack-a-mole game, at time, it appears at times, where you shut one account down and another one, a duplicate pops up. Yeah, no, exactly right. And, and I think in this case, within 24 hours following the hearing, as I predicted at the hearing, Twitter shut down the the, the, the new Laith Maroof account. And, and so the way that Laith Maroof was able to get around his permanent suspension from Twitter, which his letter that he himself posted on his, you know, on, on his social media said that he was not allowed to have an account or any other account or, you know, he was permanently suspended from Twitter for violating their rules. And yet he managed to create a new account by, get this, putting an underscore between Leith and Maroof. So Twitter couldn't figure out that Leith underscore Maroof was the same Leith Maroof that they suspended um, permanently. And when it got brought up at the hearing, uh, you know, by Michael Levitt, uh, based on information we had from Mark Goldberg, uh, you know, Twitter then publicly was embarrassed and took it down. And, and I think that this is the frustration that a lot of people who report these you know, accounts to 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 Twitter and other platforms. And by the way, Twitter is probably the best of the of, of the platforms that actually dealing with things like this. Um, you know, it, it's 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 just a sense of frustration that you think something is so clearly in violation of their guidelines or their rules, and you and yet it still stays weeks, months after you report it. Um, so so that's one series of frustration. I do agree with you. I think there's general consensus from all parties that he should not have uh, his account up on Twitter. Okay. Now, speaking of frustration and reporting, you mentioned Mark Goldberg, who had been reporting on Maroof for quite some time, um, but specifically within the context of having received funding uh, from the from the Canadian government's anti-hate program. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I want to get into this issue, both of the funding, the, the seemingly slow response from the department, and then after it became a bit of an issue, the, the lack of a response more broadly from some MPs. Thank you for being one of the most outspoken, if not the most outspoken MP on the issue. Now, you, you've noted that in, in the press that you raised this concern a while back and it took some time for the government to respond. Can you, can you fill in the blanks a little bit about what took place with respect to Canadian Heritage funding Maroof's organization, the, when you became aware of it and the, the process that followed? Um, well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I could certainly repeat what I said before and, and, and give you some information. So, so basically, Mark Goldberg, um, who, um, you know, did a very noble, you know, job here, um, was trying to reach out to lots of people on Twitter, right? He would be sending things to ministers, to conservatives, to New Democrats, um, like, so for, he was trying to reach out to all parties by sending information through Twitter, which is, to be honest, not the best way to, to, to send information, because I don't see personally, I don't go look at where I, my name has been put on Twitter and, and look at that stuff. You, you really need, if you want to reach an MP, you need to email them. You need to, you need to reach out to their office. Like that, that I, I think is, is not, it's not fair game to say I, 
you know, I messaged you on, I put a thing on Twitter and I put your name there and, and, you know, and you didn't act like that, that, you know, so like I mentioned to Marcus, when I got, I think it was July the 17th or 18th, he contacted me and I said, please send me an email, like explain to me what's going on. And when he did, I immediately had huge red flags and concerns. Um, he brought to me two different issues and one of them was the Maroof one. Um, and, and, and I remembered Leith Maroof's name from Concordia. Um, like, you know, I was doing my MBA at Concordia in the early 2000s and Leith Maroof was a student activist there who, you know, disrupted, uh, events, uh, in particular when Benjamin Netanyahu tried to speak at Concordia, there was a window broken that he claimed credit for. He, he was a, a virulent anti-Semite, um, you know, I, like not an anti-Israel, an anti-Semite. Um, and, um, and, and so immediately when I, when I received that information, I sent it, I found it. So first I had to find out what department was responsible. Um, and I was told that it was the ministry of inclusion diversity. Um, so minister Hussein, and I advised minister Hussein and, 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 you know, and his staff, um, that I am very concerned this, this exists. And I, and, and I persistently followed that up, um, you know, until action was taken, um, saying that the contract with Maroof should be canceled because Maroof was uh, somebody who, beyond his anti-Semitic views, has views that are racist against other groups. Um, his attitude certainly isn't conducive to somebody who should be doing anti-racism strategy for media. I mean, you know, whether or not that's, you know, like it's just, it's, it's absurd. Um, and yeah, and I said it took too long to uh, to terminate that contract. It was a $133,000 contract to an organization affiliated with Maroof um, that that the person who like the grant was given, you know, in like before the last like in 2019, I think. So Hussein wasn't the minister at the time, but but and that's a department issue that he got the grant that they didn't do proper due diligence. But 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 the the, the in my view, that contract should have immediately been canceled based on the posts and 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 legal niceties, which, you know, a lot of people, legal departments will tell you, you've got to send a, a notice, you've got to, you know, you've got to look at the contract and send a 30 day notice or whatever. I didn't think in this case, I thought it was an unremediable default. And, you know, nobody could have corrected this default. And, and he should have had the contract terminated. So, so then it became very public. Um, the contract was terminated. We move forward on the right path, which is looking at how we can prevent this happening again, which is revising the certification, revising the contract, enhancing the due diligence being done by the, uh, by, by, by the Department of Canadian Heritage and having proper uh, training on anti-Semitism given to the people in, in, in the department that deal with grants. And that is what the minister has now said that, you know, he's working on. I've given him all my best advice as to what should be done. And the department and the, and the Canadian Heritage Committee will be hearing from him on October the 7th to tell us um, all the things that have and will be done. It's good to hear that things have, have, have now corrected. But as you yourself know, you raised the issue. It took a long time. Frankly, I think it took until Jonathan Kay began to amplify Mark Goldberg's tweets and research that it started to generate more and more press. And it, there were, finally was a response. You know, during the during the hearing that we've been talking about, I heard politicians express frustration that at times it, it takes 72 hours rather than 24 hours to remove content. You know, in this case, we're talking about weeks to act. Is is there an explanation for why it took so long for, for something that, as you suggest, is, is essentially a no-brainer? That It's hard to understand why it would require that amount of time to, to respond to something so obvious. 
Yeah, I mean, again, like, so I, I guess there's a couple of things. The posts, when you're talking about removing the posts, the posts are up for everybody to see. There was no action taken. There were no events under this contract during the, that period of time. So perhaps there was, you know, a view that that the immediacy wasn't wasn't as important. But I, you know, I, I think also you often have departments that that take longer um, you know, to do things than than you would otherwise like, then where politically it's apparent that, you know, there's an, like I said, it's an unremediable default. If you're an unrepentant anti-Semite, you cannot possibly have a contract to do anti-racism training. You know, other people will say, well, the contract says you have to have a notice period and a right to cure and you have to give him the, and again, I, I don't know. That's not a question for me because all I was doing was saying the contract needs to be canceled. The contract needs to be canceled. Um, why it took so long, you know, it, it was, you know, a 30 day period, um, you know, between the time I alerted it and the, and the contract was canceled. Uh, you know, I think it, it it's a lesson to all of us that, you know, maybe I should have escalated it to more people and maybe I should have pushed even harder. Uh, you know, I, I, I did what I thought I could, but, you know, maybe I could have done more. I don't know. Um, the, the end result is that in the future, um, I think everybody now has gotten a warning from all parties that when there's something there that's anti-Semitic or racist or whatever else, you have to act immediately. You can't just wait. And, and I think, again, yeah, the minister has said it should have been faster. Yeah. Now, speaking of, you know, of, of acting, you know, there, there's the department response and, and, you know, you've provided some insight into that. But there was the other response or non-response that came from from many members of parliament, which led you to call on everyone to speak out. And I think it, it should be noted that some did, uh, yeah. either on their own or prompted by direct questions. My own MP, Anita Vandenbelt, yeah. uh, did in response to something that I tweeted at her. Thankfully, she was paying attention to, to uh, so, someone tweeting at her. And I thought some were really heartfelt. Uh, Rob Oliphant yeah. uh, comes to mind. But the reality is that many said nothing. Some even defended saying nothing. And I'm not even going to get into uh, sort of some what, what, what sparked coming out of, of some of that uh, in my interaction with one of your colleagues. Uh, and the reality is that many still haven't responded or even won't provide insight into some of their statements. You know, can you reflect on why so many have remained on the sidelines when it feels like there are other issues that, you know, everybody jumps in to ensure that their voice is heard? Yeah, I mean, as I said from the beginning, the Jewish MPs shouldn't have had to lead on this. It shouldn't have been up to myself and Yara Sachs and Melissa Lansman, you know, to 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 lead on on this issue. Others should have stepped forward. And I think it's a lesson to everyone. It, it certainly reminded me that when there's anti-black racism or or LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, uh, hatred or or indigenous hatred, I need to step forward and be and, and be a leader and calling it out right away. Um, you know, because I I think there's two things. One of them is, as I said to everyone, I was extremely disheartened and disappointed um, that so few people spoke out. Um, some people spoke out and used it as a political weapon. I don't think that's speaking out. I think that's that's the wrong attitude. I think I think really when this happens, everybody from every party really needs to speak out, and and that's why I called on all 338 MPs to do so. Um, and 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 I was hardened by some of my colleagues. And, and disappointed that not more spoke out. And, I, and I've raised this with people. Um, I know Yara has also raised this with people. Um, and and, and it, 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 it felt hurtful that, that, that people didn't step forward more quickly. Um, but I think people now understand that better when, when we've explained that to them. Um, and, I, and I think that I don't think that will happen again. I, I, I guess I want to also say that, I, you know, without excusing it, 
I realized that for us as Jews, when there's an incident of anti-Semitism, it comes full forefront force to us. And we see it and we see everybody who's writing about it. And we think it's the number one story in the world where other people honestly don't even notice that it's happening. Like there's MPs that don't have large Jewish communities in their writings. Nobody emails them about it. They don't walk this on Twitter because there's lots of things going on. And I had a number of colleagues that came came up to me last week and said, I, I literally had no idea this was going on. And, and, and I believe that. And I think it's it's part of the thing is maybe, you know, you, you that's you know, we've got to do more than just tweet out at people when we want them to say something. And I guess that, you know, that to me is the is, is also a lesson learned. We've got to we've got to use email or phone to say to people, you know, we really need you to speak out. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I should say I, I experienced the same thing, I have to say, when I came when I came back to the university and there was a meeting of people and I had some people coming up to me um, expressing support for uh, some of the stuff that I'd been targeted on coming out of this incident. And I had others who hadn't heard of anything about it, both my own involvement, but then more broadly what had taken place with the government. So I think you're right. It's not on everybody's radar screen. But but I, I guess I, it, it does beg the question, why is that? You know, I think that, you know, if this was an issue in, in a number of other areas with groups that, uh, you know, and it's not about, you know, this whataboutism, but it is, I think, a reflection that for some reason, anti-Semitism doesn't raise the alarm bells in some of those communities uh, in the way that some other issues do. You know, why do, do you have any ideas of, of why is that? And I agree with you. Part of it is that we need to be more vocal in more places about in instances when it happens. But it still doesn't change the very uncomfortable fact that somehow anti-Semitism feels different compared to some of the other kinds of things where it is on people's radar screens much quicker. I agree. And, and, and in fact, a number of colleagues have come forward and like told me that, that, that they've now recognized that, you know, anti-Semitism was not, you know, taken quite as seriously as other forms of hate. And I think that's a general perception within the Jewish community, whether it's true or not, I'm not sure, but there's a general perception now in the Jewish community that even though Jews are the most per capita attacked group, uh, the, the, you know, and when hate incidents are reported in almost all of our Western countries per capita, there's a much higher rate against Jews. In fact, you know, hatred against Jews is usually the top number of acts, even though we make up in Canada about 1.3% of the population, in the United States about 2.3%. There, 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 there's an issue there when, when despite it being the most widely disseminated form of hate, people don't take it as seriously. And maybe it's because there's that out, you know, that perception that Jews are are privileged, uh, you know, people have, you know, all these tropes about Jews, right, that we're, that we're all wealthy, that we're all white, that we all control the world, you know, like all these, you know, things that aren't true, maybe that sort of fit into a narrative that Jews are strong enough to defend themselves um, in versus other groups. And, and clearly, that's not the case. Uh, yes, we're lucky that, you know, that, that, that generally, if you look at, a, at the community as a whole, we're, we're more affluent than many other communities, but there's a lot of poor Jews. There's a lot of Jews of color. There's a lot of Jews who are downtrodden there, you know, and, and, and it's so it, it, it's, it's, it's one of these things where I think the reality of our community is not apparent to everybody and we need to speak out more about it. And, you know, and, and I realize that, that it's something that I, you know, have to do a lot of now, and I don't feel I had to do so much of it in my, in my early years, you know, in parliament, I, I, I sort of feel that this has become a much bigger wave in the last few years than it was when I was first elected in 2015. Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm glad you're, you are doing it. It's, this isn't an issue that I've covered in my podcast either. And 
there was a an awakening and a realization coming out of the events over the summer that there's a necessity for everyone to do their part and speak out. So I'm glad you're doing that. And I'm grateful that you came and joined me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.